I, I think we're at a crossroad. You know, we have a choice to make, and we're faced with that choice daily. And we're faced with our patriarchal lessons daily, men and women. You know, because women have been affected by that, yeah, as deeply as we have in a different way. Uh, so the, the invitation is, uh, if grace and karma would have it, to wake up. Welcome to Evolution Sucks, out of the primordial ooze and into our best life. I am super excited to have a very special person across from me today for episode four of Evolution Sucks. His name is Tom Bender, and I've known Tom for a number of years, um, here in Paonia, and Tom is also part of our men's group uh, that we started also a number of years ago, and it is really exciting for me to have a conversation with Tom. So first off, let me, let me give you a little background about Tom. Uh, Tom graduated from Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, in 1996 with a master's degree in transpersonal psychology. With his first career leap, he landed squarely in the dank hallways of the Bernalillo County Detention Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Don't try saying that five times fast. Uh, where he spent four and a half years working on the psychiatric service unit. Wow, I'm sure we could just unpack that for this whole conversation. Uh, after wrapping up his time there, he likes to think of it as completing his sentence. <laughs> he spent the next decade working with Native American communities, both in New Mexico and Oregon. In 2010, Tom launched into the grand adventure of private practice, where it has been his privilege to accompany his clients as they work through the various trials and tribulations, victories, and heart-cracking moments that life presents us with as beings walking the planet. Tom has drawn great inspiration from his travels in both the United States and abroad. At various times, he has been a student of Peruvian healing, Buddhist psychology, Native American traditional practices, and Judaic comedy. Hmm, I might have to ask him to tell us a joke. Uh, he has also been active in men's groups, both as a participant and a leader, since 1988. In 2011, Tom began training with renowned couples therapist and expert Terry Real, and he has been certified in Terry's relational life therapy model since 2015. He specializes his specialties include couples and individual counseling, after recovery, past trauma healing, men's work, and spiritual support. Tom is happily married and the delighted father of a shining 11-year-old daughter. Welcome, Tom Bender. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, thank you for joining me. 
Yeah. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much there and just in your bio that I almost feel like we could just dive into. Um, but yeah, what, what part, like what a trajectory for you to sort of embark on. And, uh, I don't know why I'm getting stuck on the psychiatric service unit. It almost sounds like a law enforcement unit or something like that. It was it was close, and it was I was freshly out of grad school. Uh, it was honestly it was traumatizing initially. Um, so white boy raised born and raised in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and suddenly I'm working in this jail in the middle of hell in Albuquerque. Um, I'd never been in a jail. I'd never worked with that population and I was new to the field and pretty much every day I woke up not wanting to be there. Um, and so I was getting a lot of support from friends, from family to quit. Oh, oh really? Pretty, pretty early on. Uh-huh. And that sounded a little too familiar. So I, I committed myself no matter what happened to stay there for at least three months. And then if I was still hating it every day after three months, then okay, sure. I consider looking for another job. And, right. and sometime in that three months, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was sent to um, assess somebody that was acting sort of funny. So I sat right down next to him at a table on this classification floor. And he wasn't really making a lot of sense. And so I was going, well, hey, I'm not understanding. And suddenly I saw this fist flying at me out of the blue and I leaned back just in time and he didn't change his expression and he got up and walked away. And that was sort of trial by fire. And, uh, but at that point I'd been there long enough where I was like starting to get the hang of it. And even to this day, after four and a half years there, that was ended in like 2000, one of the greatest learning experiences as therapists that I've ever had. Really? Yeah. Wow, four and a half years, though. Yeah. So I'm guessing you got some good traction and and started seeing some results to hang in there? Or or what was sort of the metric that you were gauging the experience? Like, were you really making an impact on these people that you were seeing in a way that was measurable to you? I mean, there must have been some carrot to keep you there for four and a half years. It's a great question. And the carrot was... is the team. Mm. So the metric, I mean, working with people there, I would see somebody for a long session might be 15 minutes. And a lot of times it was less than that. Uh Um, But as a team, we were solid and it had that sort of ER mentality where we're all in it. Uh And we became really tight and we became, eventually we became the tightest running department in that whole jail. Oh, yeah. And so, and, but also I, whether I made an impact or not, you never really got a lot of feedback, but I tried, I tried to see, no matter what the crime was, I tried to see them as human. Uh huh. And even to the point where I was working, nobody in the department wanted to work with uh, the sex offenders, mm. including me. Mm-hmm. And I took it on as service. Hmm. And so I'd work with these guys and, uh, and really put in some intentional effort towards seeing the divinity underneath the offense. Interesting. Yeah. 
I can imagine that would be challenging to conjure up that, seeing that in someone who's done something so horrible. Were most of the patients men that you were working with? Men and women. It was, as the jail was, the majority was men, but there were a couple of women's floors there too. And so we, we had, there was a men's psych unit, there was a women's psych unit, and then there was another two other floors with women as well. And probably about six or seven of men. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So prior to that, you had done some men's work. And then you went to Naropa and got your degree there. So you had some training. What, from your men's group experience, was any of that helpful at the psych unit? That's a really good question. You know what? I started... Eventually, after I'd been there for a while and I'd become seasoned, mm-hmm. they, they, it's not even a promotion, but they bumped me up to the men's psychiatric floor coordinator. Right. And so basically, I was the king uh-huh. there. Uh-huh. And so I could do anything I wanted. And so one of the things I did was I started men's groups up there. Uh, oh. And so uh, they were they didn't know quite what to make of it, but I... It was, and part of it was that they were a captive audience. It was a requirement every morning. <laughs> yeah. And, but some of these groups, I could tell they landed. They, they, uh-huh. they weren't feeling judged by me because I wasn't judging them. And I also wouldn't get defensive with them. So if I had an agreement with them, mm-hmm. if I said I was going to do something and I didn't do it, and suddenly I had this angry inmate in my face saying, right. you said, um, I would just say, you're right. I did agree to do that. Didn't get it done. I'll take care of it now. And so I did that probably for my last year and a half in the jail. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you were actually in the jail itself. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going through like security checks and bars and clanging doors. And I mean, what, what was that like? Especially as you introduced yourself as this white guy from, where was it? Minneapolis? It's called Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, <laughs> just like it sounds. Right. So yeah. you had, you had obviously had never been incarcerated. No. And so, I mean, were these guys checking out your street cred? Were they like trying to, to like bump up against you and see like, you know, paying off you and see how you would react? Every day. Yeah. <laughs> for, for four and a half Sometimes years. multiple times yeah, a day. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they, they definitely tested us, and they tested us routinely. And our whole psych unit came on at the same time because of a lawsuit. Uh-huh. So the old unit, they, were, they all quit. Yep. And so they brought us on. So once they realized, once we all got on the same page, they would test, they would test, they would test until they realized that we knew what we were doing. Mm. And then... Then it was just a real exchange. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Have you ever heard of uh, this gentleman, Vinny Ferraro? No. Well, I was uh, listening to this super trauma uh, conference that was you could join, and there's all these uh, people speaking on that. And Vinny was one of the uh, videos on there, and he works with the prison population. Um, but he was a former inmate. He was a junkie. You know, he he kind of grew up in that lifestyle. He tells the story of his father was in prison. His aspiration was to end up in prison. So it's just interesting to hear your story. 
dealing with similar circumstances in a jail uh, with some probably really hard people. And I think it's, uh, you're not from a background like Vinny's, and yet you were still able to uh, hang in there. I'm just so impressed by that. It took a while. It was a learning curve for sure. And, uh, and again, the important part was, here's what I saw with the inmates there, uh-huh. is that anybody that acted like a hard ass, like you were going to, you know, because especially when I was the coordinator of the psych floor, what I said went, I could like tell the CEO, lock this guy down and, and right. the person be locked down. Right. Um, those were the guys that weren't really respected mm. a lot around the jail, whether it was a corrections officer or a psych unit person. If you tried to bully somebody or if you mm-hmm. acted tougher than you were, they could see right through it. They could smell it. Huh. And so, so it was really important to be authentic, Yep. to treat them with humanity, but also to have good boundaries. Yeah. You know? And so, so, for example, if somebody was like playing the suicide card, if I could tell that they were manipulating and they were really suicidal, it'd be a little bit of a negotiation. Mm-hmm. So uh, something along the lines of, you know, I'm... I'm really sorry to hear that. So I, we're going to have to put you on a suicide cell with 15-minute checks, and you're just going to have this suicide blanket, and that's it. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not suicide. I was just kidding. <laughs> well, now I don't know what to believe yeah, because right. you just told me a couple minutes ago. And it, was, yeah. it was like that. It was You just get into the flow and into the game of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I don't want to jump too far ahead, but taking that experience into your private practice, has it informed it? in a way or or are you just are you kind of elongated and spread out more and more relaxed in a way with your private clients how has that changed for you it's a really good question i mean i I was at the jail a long time ago but what i will tell you for sure is that it toughened me up Uh uh-huh you know because you had to be tough in that environment and uh and it also really really honed my assessment skills like i you know, when I first started there, I would be making decisions. So one of the things that we did is we'd see people, we'd assess them in booking. They'd be brought in. Some people would were traumatized. Some people, it was like coming home. How you doing, Jose? You know, it'd be like, and anything in between, right? Mm. And so, but I would fairly often, at least once a week, I'd go home wondering if somebody was going to be alive when I came back the next morning. Right. And I would take that home and I would wonder about that and then I was as I was there longer and longer I learned to trust myself and to trust my judgment and so I brought that into my practice Uh and from and then when I left the jail I started working with the tribes I got hired at a tribal agency wasn't looking for it wasn't trying for the red road experience it found me and um, and from there it was like oh I'm going from 15 minute sessions to 60. Mm. It was a luxury. I, I, I didn't know what to do with myself, you know, because <laughs> it was so long. And, uh, and so it was... And, like going from speed dating to a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and so... And I had worked with a few tribal members at the jail, but I didn't really know anything about it. I, just, I was just looking for a job, and I was hired, and, and that became a whole other journey by itself. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, I, I kind of want to sort of circle back a little, like what led you into wanting to do this kind of work? Like, was there some 
moment, like a watershed moment, like, oh, I want to be a therapist. I want to help people. Like, where'd that motivation come from? There, there are two moments that come to mind. One is, it's just that my, my brother, we're close. And he just made one comment when he was already away at school. I was still in high school. And he just said this one thing. He said, yeah, I'm thinking of going into social work. And I was just like, oh, that sounds kind of nice. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. Just there's something about the way he said that that stuck with me. Wasn't on your radar. Wasn't on my radar. Huh. I was in high school, uh, drinking, doing a lot of drugs. You know, wasn't normal high school yeah, stuff, exactly. people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then of, so fast forward a little bit. So I'm 20, I believe, at the time, out of a dysfunctional two and a half year relationship. Uh, live, sleeping on my mom's couch until I went away to school. Actually, I'm not even sure if I was planning on going away at that point. And I came home one day from a hospital job. And my mom looked a little nervous. And she looked at me and she goes, I made an appointment with a therapist. Like she said it really fast. Like she just wanted to get it out <laughs> yeah. there. If she said it fast enough, you wouldn't hear her <laughs> or something. Yeah, but the thing is, is that I was... I was depressed enough and could also feel the wisdom in it enough. And she looked at me and I looked at her and I just said, okay. And I went in. And this person, I, I wouldn't say he saved my life, but he definitely was instrumental in heading me in the right direction. Uh huh. Yeah. And so that influence... That and there's one other thing too, which is I just noticed that people liked opening up to me, even at a bar, even if I was drinking. I'd ask a question or two, and suddenly it would just like the dam would burst. Huh. And I'm, I'd scratch my head, like, what is this? I just have to ask one question, and suddenly people are just pouring their hearts out. And so I was, that kind of stuck with me too. Interesting. So you were at a crossroads TV host or therapist? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you chose the therapist yeah. route. Um, so <laughs> I guess I want to dive a little deeper into, into the work you do, um, and sort of tie it into this conversation around men, because I feel like that's, that's going to be the thrust of this conversation. And, um, in, in the couples work, you, you see both individuals and couples, but in the couples work, how, how receptive are the men like do you do you, who who's sort of leading the charge in your experience is it the women or the men no by far the women by are, the women. are getting their men to sit and talk to you yeah well a lot of it is um we're either going into therapy or we're done uh-huh and so the ultimatum and, yeah i i guess for lack of better words yeah it's right. sometimes it's an ultimatum sometimes the woman just through strength and and uh force of will says we are doing this mm -hmm. uh sometimes the men initiates not too often but once in a while right and then not infrequently both parties are on board but but by and large it's the women that are driving it uh-huh and when you get a, a man there for a session is there like do you spend the inordinate amount of time trying to get him to communicate or get in touch with emotion because you know, I feel like that's sort of what we've been trained as men, especially men in, from our generation, is, you know, don't feel, don't talk about it, suck it up, that whole dynamic. 
So what, what's that look like when a guy shows up? Initially, when I first started, before I started training with Terry, I was at that tribal agency and I started doing couples counseling. I loved it immediately. I was, oh, getting, really? I was getting a little bit bored with individual counseling. I still liked it, but yep. it was, but you throw another person in the room and much more challenging. Yeah. Uh, and so I've been in men's groups. I like men. Men more tend to like me for the most part. And so I was doing, I was making uh, an, a strategic error that Terry helped me realize as soon as I started training with him, which is I would try to support the woman while kind of seducing the man into the process. Mm. Like, so I'd try and get some buy-in with him. And I remember one person in particular where I was, I was seeing the couple. He was obviously acting in sort of an a relational kind of egregious way. And, but I saw this little smirk on his face that, that to me I interpreted as, oh, hey, I can do this, no problem. Oh. And the woman just looked sort of confused and a little, I wouldn't say betrayed, but a little confused, like, wait, what's going on here? And so as soon as I started working with Terry, he pointed that out, that that's a strategic error that a lot of therapists who work with couples make, which is they feel like they have to kind of seduce the guy into the process mm -hmm. while trying to support the woman. And really what he pointed out is that I'm playing the same role with that guy as everybody else is, including his wife, Yeah, where we're trying to walk on eggshells and trying to like sort of not call him out on his bad behavior. Yeah. Changed my life as a therapist and as a human being. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's one thing I noticed in reading Terry's book is like, he has no problem calling people out. Right. And saying it like it is. And the, my, my assumption about therapy was, you know, a lot of that eggshell walking, you know, don't pick sides, don't call someone out, you know, just say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know. And I love that about him. Like, he's going to call it like he sees it. Well, and that, that picking sides thing, that's sort of unique as far as I know to the RLT model, Terry's model. Yep. It's just we do choose sides. If somebody's acting in an egregious way or they, if Mr. Unmedicated Bipolar Person who's drinking or drugging um, is out of control and his wife and is taking care of the kids and at wit's end, I'm not going to act like all things are equal. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I know. Um, I feel like often when, when you're in the chair with your uh, partner or your spouse, the the best behavior thing might come out too, where like some of those those behavioral issues, uh, especially for the guy, and I'm also speaking for myself here. You know, you're not gonna show that side of you that may be triggering something in your partner or your spouse in the therapist office, right? And if that if that be the case, how do you how do you get to see the dynamic, I guess is what I'm asking. Like, does the dynamic just show up because two people are in this, you know, triangulated, you're the, you're the point of the triangle and they're, you know, coming to you and they either let their hair down and just, you know, let the shit fly or do you have to sort of create a, a ground, I guess is what I'm asking. 
Like, how do you how do you get that to happen? It's that a really, process. Another good question. It's. Uh, I have a lot of good questions. Yeah. <laughs> so years ago, when I was in grad school, one of my teachers said that studies show that people. So, so people didn't want to, during a role play in our counseling classes, they didn't want to sort of, quote, play themselves, right? So they wanted to role play somebody else uh -huh. because it felt too vulnerable, right? Right, sure. And so the teacher said with a little smile, she goes, sure. And so after a few classes, she let us know that, that studies show that people can hold a role play for about 10 minutes, and then they start defaulting into who they really are. Oh, so there's that aspect. People start showing themselves despite themselves, whether they intend to or not, almost immediately. Now the other thing is, hmm. if I'm seeing a guy by himself, and that happens plenty too, you know, I understand that I'm getting one person's viewpoint, right? And uh, I see part of my being an ally to that man is not just swallowing everything they're saying, but like like sort of poking, testing a little bit, right? questioning. But if you throw a second person in, if you bring in a heterosexual couple, if you bring the wife in, you got a built in reality check there. Yeah. You know, and the only re and the way that that wouldn't work is if she's afraid that if she actually shares what's really going on, that there's going to be hell to pay when they get home. Oh, and that, interesting. that comes out pretty quickly too. And Does I also, it? I check that sort of thing. I'll ask if there's any active domestic violence going on sure. or even emotional violence or verbal violence. And yep. I checked that out pretty early on. Yeah. Wow. So what is going on with men? <laughs> what are we doing? Like why, you know, there's this whole uh, beautiful movement um, for the feminine to, to now have their time and their place and, and, uh, and yet I feel like a lot of men are lost in this process and the process of what of, of women stepping into their power. And, uh, you said something before we went live and, uh, I hope you remember what that was, but you know, it, it isn't this idea of like, okay, women, now you get all the power and men, you're like, you know, back in the shadows because y you fucked everything up. Uh, it, yeah, so I, I, this dynamic, right? This thing, toxic masculinity, I don't really care for that. But, you know, the the trauma of patriarchy, which Sue Mason and I talked about on episode three. I mean, all these things are up right now. And where does that leave us as men where we're being asked to be more sensitive, be more... Uh, you know, contributing more around maybe it's child rearing, you know, all sorts of different aspects that we're being asked to now embrace that maybe in the past we're like, no, I don't, I just don't do that. I go make the money, I come home, pour a scotch and read the paper, right? I mean, that's sort of an old paradigm from the 50s, 60s. So, you know, and, and again, I want to just, you know, acknowledge you've done a lot of work in this department. I mean, you were part of the Mankind Project. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. But yeah, where are where are men? Like, what what is our deal right now? Like, what do you see? Like, our mission is. Maybe that's the quick question. I like that question. It's um, 
I, I think we're at a crossroad. You know, we have a choice to make, and we're faced with that choice daily. Uh-huh. And we're faced with our patriarchal lessons daily, men and women. You know, because women have been affected by that. Totally. Yeah, as deeply as we have in a different way. Right. <laughs> Uh, so the, the invitation is, uh, if grace and karma would have it to wake up and the men, I work with a lot of men that don't even, I remember one person I worked with for probably a year and a half and as close as he came to identifying a feeling was saying that he felt a little tingling on the side of his cheek. Wow. That's as close as in a year and a half off and on. So the invitation is there. And of course, there's a lot of people that aren't going to heed the call. Or, But what's interesting about being a couples counselor is it's, it's one of the few types of therapy that is accepted more or less by men and women. Like even men that are in the military, they don't want it on their record record that they're getting individual counseling because it doesn't look good, right? Mm. Or it could, it could be used against them. Sure. But getting couples counseling, working, le- learning how to be a more relational being is one of those few things that everybody wants. Everybody wants to save their marriage. Everybody wants to save their relationship. And if they don't, then the question for the, again, I'm going in the heterosexual direction. So, sure. So please translate it uh, for the listeners. Yes. Um, so then the question is, why are you in? Why are you in this thing if this person isn't willing to kind of start working on himself? And and so a lot of times, as Susan alluded to last week, too, with some people, we're starting at ground zero. Yes. Uh, which means emotional intelligence training. Uh, one thing that I know that I, I've heard this a number of times when a couple comes in, they might have tried couples counseling two or three different times, typically with a female counselor. And what happens is, is that the guy feels like he's being picked on. Yes. Um, and they drop out after like one or two sessions. And I'll say, well, how come? How come you dropped out? And usually it's oftentimes it's the guy felt like he wasn't being seen or heard. Um, and again, because I'm a man, because I like men, uh, I will. I want to know who they are. I want to hear who they are. I want to know what they know about feelings. I treat them respectfully. But they can also hear it when I call them out. You know, when I feel like they're off about something, there's just something about hearing it from another man that they can receive. Right. Yeah. Huh. This, uh, this phrase, emotional intelligence, I mean, this is, how do, you, how do you break the ice, as it were, with somebody like that client that you described who, who said, I feel a sensation on my cheek after a year and a half? I mean, are... Are they just sort of like, okay, well, that's the best you can do. How do, how do we encourage this taking the opportunity, as you said? Like, what is that? What is that drive or that intention? How do we get that? How do we get men to take that invitation in a, in a subject matter that they have no training in? Right. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to even back up even a little bit further. So hold that question. Yep. Uh, Years ago, I was in grad school. There was a woman that was in my program who trained with a famous family therapist named Virginia Satir. Mm. 
so I was at this training, she was offering this, even though she was in grad school, she was she was offering myself and five or six women this weekend training in Virginia Satir's model. And so I was there, I was the only man, and I'm hearing everybody talking about feelings, 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 feelings. We have to help this person feel feelings. We have to help that. We have to help people. And just over and over, feelings, feelings. And I just kept hearing this word, and suddenly I just said, why? And everybody stops and looks at me, and the, t and the trainer goes, why what? I said, why are feelings so important? And all the women in that circle, except for the trainer, started laughing. And the trainer goes, no, that's a good question. And so the reason why I want to help men get in touch with that aspect of themselves, and what I'll try and quote her because it, it more or less stays with me to this day, is because it is a, speaking of evolution sucks, right? It is a step in our evolution as human beings. Mm -hmm. And if we try and leapfrog it, if we, if we disregard it, um, then we're going to be stunted in our growth and as relational beings. Mm. Uh, and then what we do is then we do things consciously or unconsciously to sort of bypass that, that aspect of ourselves. Uh, it's, I can't remember, I think you talked to Susan about Maslow's hierarchy, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's Maslow's hierarchy. It's like we can't leapfrog our emotional body um, because there's hell to pay relationally if we do, right? Right. And so if we come back to your question, I mean, the first step, what I do in the very first session with every single man I work with is once they get to know me, once they feel a little more comfortable with me, a lot of times I'll throw an F-bomb in there pretty early on and I just see people kind of relax, right? Yeah. And then I'll ask them, okay, so let's do a little exercise. What are you feeling right now? And some men can do it. A lot of men are just like, well, I think I'm feeling, and I'll just say, okay, hold it. Because when I see your eyes go up and you use the word think, you're thinking about it. So close your eyes, breathe into your body. And, and it's a check. I'm not, you know, can they identify feeling or can't they? And, and it gives me a litmus test of, sure. of where to start with them. Right. Yeah. So for a lot of men, one of my early assignments with them is, uh, it sounds like Susan may do something similar too, is, three, four, five times a day, check in with your feelings. You know, set your phone, put a post-it up, do whatever you need to do. Ask yourself, what am I feeling? Do it randomly, because we're not making like these negative emotions, anger, any, we're not putting that above or below anything else. Mm -hmm. You might be feeling calm. And then I ask them to take a breath and feel that calmness for a moment and then move on. So that's where I start with a lot of men. Wow. Yeah. That's a really powerful exercise. Checking in multiple times a day. How am I feeling? Uh, do you notice a generational difference? Like, is this something that, you know, uh, I was born in the late 50s. I think you were born in the early 60s. Uh, are you finding that men from our generation, I guess we're boomers, it's hard to believe, but... Uh, <laughs> Are younger is it is the younger generation of men experiencing some of the same inability to access feeling or identify what they're feeling? I think a lot of that depends on how and where they were raised. Uh, if they were raised by men that that didn't do their own emotions, then that was their role model, right? Uh -huh. um, 
I would say a lot of young men are more emotionally literate, but not entirely, you know, and, and a lot of men will say, well, you know, I wasn't raised that way. But in, by and large, I'd say, yeah, they're, they're more in touch. And if they aren't, that they're, they can go there a little more easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, but what I hear really, really often, I'll ask both halves of the couple, but I'll ask a man, uh, what did you learn about your emotions and about conflict growing up in that house? And three out of five times, four out of five times, the answer is, well, nothing. Didn't learn really? anything about my, yeah. Because, uh, you know, what you hear a lot about fathers that they grew up in is, oh, he was stoic, or he didn't show any emotion, or he was gone a lot. And then every once in a while, you hear like a really good story. Yeah, my, my father was really big hearted, told me he loved me, all that stuff. Mm. Yeah. And it shows. It shows. Does it? Yeah. Huh. Um, you want to talk a little about your experience with the Mankind Project and how that sort of informed what you're doing now and kind of what that experience was like for you? Yeah. Uh, uh, the Mankind Project is a, it's mainly first world or maybe first and a half world international men's organization. And this isn't a plug, by the way. This is just me describing it right now. Yeah, we're not being paid. Yeah. Um, and it was, and they, so it's a men's organization and they do something, they offer a men's initiation weekend. It's called the New Warrior Training Adventure. Now, I've been to like a lot of gatherings over the years, a lot of gatherings, and some were really powerful. Some I could have lived my whole life and not attended and been just fine. Uh, the, the new warrior train, they call it the NWTA, was a really, really powerful experience. And it felt like a true men's initiation. It was challenging uh, in the best sense of the word and very skillfully run. And the lead, to, to get into the position of leadership in the Mankind Project, it is well-earned. They put in years of time and volunteering and all that stuff. So uh, I went through my initiation, I think, in 2010. Uh, and after, after going through that, then people, a lot of people, there are spinoffs or spinoff men's groups. They're free. Nobody makes money on them. And sometimes they're every week. Sometimes they're every other week. And where I, the, those men's groups after the, the weekend was where I started truly valuing accountability. I was just going to say that word. Yeah. That's what was coming up yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and because for me, like, so there's a there's an accountability process that they would use in this group. So if the group is supposed to start at 6.30 and somebody comes in at like 6.32, mm -hmm. when I first started in these groups, I'm just like, who cares? Two minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. They would, the person who was there two minutes late would process, would use this uh, accountability process to explore why he was two minutes late. And what I came to realize is that my loosey-goosey who cares about two minutes initially kind of reflected how I was in the rest of my life. And so it really hmm. helped me turn a corner to really caring, being on time, being a man of my word. I, I try to keep my word with my let, let me let me take that word try out of there. I, for the most part, I keep my word with my daughter. Anything I say, I'm going to do with her. Mm -hmm. I either do or I'm letting her know that I'm going to need a little more time or why I can't get to it. Uh, I think it's really, That's really, huge. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And really then big. as men, so important to keep 
our agreements. And, and relationally, too, if we're talking about relationship as well, it's one of the biggest complaints that I hear is, is they say they're going to do something and they don't. And that, that goes in both directions. But typically, again, it's more in the masculine direction. It's so funny as you were describing that and talking about that, I could see how there are so many things woven in to the masculine and you know, there's this sort of like, okay, you know, the old paradigm doesn't work and how do we extract the good and, and you know, push aside or, or set aside the not so good. And in that conversation, I could hear like, oh, well, yeah, there's a part of being a man is like beyond time or part of being a man is accountability, right? And these are, are masculine qualities that can have a positive spin to them or, or be uh, just the way you describe to, you know, how you might interact with your daughter and say, here's why I can't do this right now. Instead of being like, hey, I can't, you know what, I can't do that right now. You know, I can't be bothered or snap the paper and, you know, you're hidden behind the front page of the paper. So, I mean, I just see there's these qualities that are very masculine and actually important not to disregard, but they get a, a new sort of a new shine or a new spin to them. Hmm. And I really, yeah, as you were describing that your, your time with MKP, I was like, God, accountability. How many men desire accountability? And why is that important? Why is accountability so important? You know, and having been, yeah, neither of us have served in the military, but accountability in the military is paramount. Right. Accountability in the fire service when I was part of that is huge. And so those are things that I, I feel like we can get behind as men and that we aren't like, okay, in the name of being more open and accessible and emotionally available, I'm going to disregard these other aspects of masculinity. I don't think that's, that's what's going on here. No. And, well, for example, you were on the volunteer fire department too. And so you weren't going to just say, hey, I'm not in the mood. Or I, uh, there, yeah. there was an agreement and you yeah. were obliged by it. If the pager goes off, my first thought is, uh, how quick can I get there? And second thought is, what if I just say, yeah, I, I can't be bothered and no one shows up? What if we all are, all our pagers went off and we're in the middle of something that we deem more important? So yeah, that was a, that's for me, it was a big piece around accountability because I'd be letting someone down. Right. Right. Yeah. And then if you extend that to relationship, being accountable, being men of our word, I mean, to me, it's a sign of maturity and really a lot of times when I'm working with a couple, and, and men and women do this, and probably men more than women, but, but both genders. Uh, if somebody is sort of wasn't, didn't keep their word, didn't keep their agreement, they'll start like enumerating reasons why. And I, a lot of times I'll see the other partner just kind of roll their eyes and just like, I don't want to hear this. And so sometimes it's like a justification or something well, or, it's, uh, or yeah, it's an old story or an old dynamic. It's, it's an old story, both, uh, yeah. it's both. And so the, 
the accountability process that MKP uses in these groups, it's, it's just really clear cut. What was the agreement? And then the next question is, did you keep the agreement? Yes or no? So yeah. there's no shaming involved? No, no. At all? It's no. just very cut and dry. Meeting starts at 6.30. You arrived at 6.32. Typically, how would the guy respond to arrive late? How would, how would he respond to, hey, you are late? Was there excuse making or justification? No, 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 no. They would, people would out them. We'd get to uh, an accountability round. There's four rounds. And then if somebody was late, they outed themselves. I was two minutes late. I'd like to do an accountability process. Oh, so they weren't called out for showing up two minutes no, late. No, it was just, it was, it was the value and the norm. That if, if, so, for example, if you took something on that week, like I'm going to exercise three times this week. And if you exercise two times this week, you know, oh, two times. Okay, not, not bad. Yeah, not, not bad. So That's bad. all right. So when you get to that question, did you keep the agreement, yes or no? The answer is still no. Uh-huh. Wow. You know, and be, and then, then the next question is, what did you make more important than keeping your agreement? And and it's to me, it's this really loving process. It's not shaming. Now, the, the people that interpret it as shaming already have, in my opinion, already have a shame trigger there. Got it. So occasionally I would do that with some of my male clients. I would explain to them, it's a respectful, loving process. Are you wanting to give this a shot? Most of the time, the answer is yes. But every once in a while, I see somebody sort of triggered and kind of their eyes go down and we have to process a little bit. So Wow. Yeah. What an amazing experience. So uh, I just, this brought up a, a memory about one of our men's groups. And I don't know if you were there. It was held here on our property. And uh, I was, I guess since I was hosting, I was sort of, you know, leading the process or feeling a responsibility around, you know, the gathering. And uh, one of the men showed up like an hour later than the appointed time. And I did not handle that very well. Uh, I remember it well. You were there. <laughs> so I... <I'd, laughs> I love your take on this, but I mean, I've already processed and, and seen the errors of my way, but I basically kicked the guy out. I said, you're not welcome here. And uh, one of our uh, beloved uh, members of this men's group uh, who has subsequently passed, he, he took me to task on how I handled that. And he, he basically said, you know what, man, anyone's welcome here whether they fucking show up two minutes late or two hours late, we're here to support. And so, you know, in that moment, I, I had that still that edge of like, no, this is, this is the meeting starts at 5.30, you showed up at 6.30. What the fuck? You're out. And, and it was really uncomfortable in that room, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a lot of tension there. What would you have done differently with hindsight? Oh, I, I love the, uh, how you described that MKP handles that, that, you know, maybe that person gets welcomed in and then, then they self-account, I guess is the word, I don't even know if that's a phrase, but they would then say, hey, you know what, I showed up an hour late and uh, it doesn't matter why I was late, something like that. But, 
you know, the energy, I, I guess I want to just describe a little more about what I was feeling. I was feeling like, make a commitment. Like, make this a priority. We meet once a month for two, three hours. And if you can't get here on time, then don't come. That was my point of view. That was my belief. And Javier was like, no way, dude. Everyone's welcome. I don't care when they show up. And, you know, he, he's, he, his voice carried a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. You know, he was ravaged by cancer. And, you know, he was on his way out of this world. And he was probably seeing things uh, through a lens that I was incapable of seeing. But I want to hear Tom Bender's take on that. Well, a couple things. One is uh, I'm mindful of not wanting to... I don't think we're we're breaking any sort of confidentiality, but I'm just mindful of wanting to not cross over any potential lines. Yeah, I don't want to name names. Yeah, yeah. Um, Other than Javier's, he's, uh, I, yeah, his his voice for is very for, powerful. Yeah, it was very powerful. Uh, the Mankind Project value and norm wasn't in place, so and a lot of the men in our group. Had, hadn't been in a men's group before. Right. And so they didn't know. Uh, I would like to have welcomed him back into the group. And I don't know if you or somebody reached out to him. Somebody went outside. I think it might have been you. And Well, that, that just shows that I'm aging beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I believe Somebody, I did. it may be more than one, okay. went outside. Okay. And I, I do vaguely remember approaching and saying, are you sure you don't want to like check back in? And, and he was pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't have that accountability piece. We didn't have, there, there's a, another clearing process. We didn't have the clearing process. We didn't have any of that. And um, so as part of that structural, like we hadn't created the structure yeah. or the importance because, you know, we all, and I, I think it wasn't long after that I was late to a meeting, uh, you know, a couple months after that experience. But at that point, I was like kind of adopting the Javier philosophy of like, hey, if you show up, congrats. You know, everyone's got a busy life. But is it a structural thing that we hadn't established in the group? Yeah, I, I believe so. And, and part of that is that we hadn't even talked about if somebody wanted to check out of the group, meaning to leave the group. We didn't have anything in place for that too. And so that was a little loosey-goosey as well. And eventually we started heading in that direction. Um, and the other thing, what I know about myself is that uh, I guess I have a little bit of a controlling aspect to myself and I'm very heady. So I gravitate towards that structure, towards that MKP kind of structure. And so I felt like it was important. I was actively trying not to be so attached to that uh-huh. uh, until people, until we created something that we could all agree with. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, as you know, is that to be in a man's body, I mean, so much coming back to the like dark masculine so much of our gender, a lot of our gender, a lot of the shadow aspects of it is based on domination. And so I could imagine that that man felt 
like he was being one-upped or he was, yeah. there was like this attempt to dominate or whatever. Yeah. And if we extend that, that's, that's all of our work. Right. Including women who have kind of, who have bought into or been under the thumb of the patriarchy for so long. So we get to create a new reality. And, you know, Terry said something a number of years ago. And what was interesting, I was listening to a lecture of his. So I was listening to in one location, Jen, my wife was in another location. And then another a client of mine was in a different location. So three locations, listening to this free lecture online. And he said one thing during that one hour lecture that stuck out for all of us. And that one sentence was, is that there's no vulnerability in anger. You know, so the whole explain thing, that meaning that it's it's anger is an easy default, ah, and for a lot of us, nice. it's 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 not just a it, it's it's a sign of fear. We don't want to get vulnerable. We don't want to sort of be honest and say, "Hey, I was scared, or I felt hurt." So instead, I'm just going to get big and kind of scary, and so. So to me, that really stuck out. What does that bring up for you? Oh, no, that's huge. Uh, you know, knowing what I know now, um, that that was such an easy default for me was to uh, show my anger, get in someone's face. And really, as you were speaking, I was really feeling into it. Like, I, I didn't have the, the ability to be vulnerable in that moment because to me if i said hey come on in don't worry about being an hour late that would have somehow been cast on me as a, as me being weak this this jamie's thought process right i i don't want to appear to be weak i don't want to appear to be a pushover and it's super easy for me to get in someone's face. Yeah. Well, no problem. And you know what the word for that is, right? It's called fear. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to be viewed like A, B, or C, so I'm going to get big and scary. Yeah. Get big and scary. And, and I mean, honestly, Tom, that's sort of how I've run the program here called Jamie for a long time. And uh, it's great that, that that experience, when I, when I see it now... I'm like, oh, dude, you could have played that so differently. Because it, I'll tell you, it was super uncomfortable. I think somebody might have gotten up and left because that man didn't stay. I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly, but it was, it was just not comfortable. And it was counter to what we're trying to do in a men's group. It was just one man dominating another. Mm -hmm. And then nobody unpacked that, right? I don't think we really talked about what just happened from that point of view of like domination, fear. No, I don't think we took it to that shame. level. Shame. I know that yeah. the person who left felt shame. Yeah. For sure. Because they got shamed. Although what I, and, and I remember him getting up and walking out too, which I respected actually in the moment too. But I'm, so maybe you said this already, but that, MO that you did that night, you've been doing that for years, right? You have a strong personality. Lifetime people. 
Yeah, you have a strong personality, and so you're used to I'm making sorry. your will your will be felt. Right. And but it's so easy to see the inception of where that where that got developed. You know, um, Terry, the whole concept of the adaptive child is just so real to me. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I could see how that happened. Yeah, you know? and that adaptive child served you well for a number of years. Right. Thank you. It protected you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, and then it's time. I heard you talking about some of this last time too. With Sue, yeah. What what Terry calls the wise adults. So it's right. just like, okay, that's a young stance, that adaptive child that's young. And so now I'm going to rise into my true power. Right. Which is vulnerability, your big loving heart, uh, validation, and modeling a true feeling man yeah yeah inclusivity is the yeah. word i'm thinking you know yeah. wrapping everyone into this love and this this uh ability to feel in a new way not just react but to feel not be triggered but to sit for a moment and feel um you know you talked about this dark masculine and this is something you know, I don't want to go off on a, you know, bizarre side adventure here, but let's face it, half the country in the last election voted for somebody and the other half voted for somebody. And what are we up against? I mean, is this like men's movement that, you know, we're talking about? Is that, can that, reach a critical mass where it's now influencing. I mean, I really, and I said this to Sue in, in our podcast, I don't know. It's hard to call. Like, right. are we going to come out in the light and, and drag this sort of old belief system into the light with us? I mean, what do you think about that? And I know it's something you do think about, so I don't want to go too far down that yeah, rabbit every hole. Once in a while, you saw me in the men's group just kind of, no. A little tweak. Yeah, for, you, for, for your <laughs> listeners, uh, I was consumed. I was yeah, consumed yeah. by it. I consumed, let me restate that. I consumed myself yeah. with these thoughts. Yeah. And nice. where I am with it right now is. Let me back up. So I have a teacher in my life and I called her because I was in one of these consumed moments. And she said with a smile and a very light touch that what she focuses on for the most part is just what's on her plate. Just what's on her plate. Uh -huh. and, and initially because things felt so arduous in this country, I thought well, that's turning a blind eye and what about this? What about that? Right. Almost like um, a lack of responsibility yeah, or something. Yeah, kind of like turn. Yeah, and so, but over time, I've really been asking myself, how, what do I have control over, really? And the answer, for the most part, is Tom. Uh, and so I've been focusing on that. But the other thing is, is that when I feel an impulse to act in a positive direction or something, something, you know, I, what I consider like these reoccurring thoughts that a lot of us have, we typically think that they're just thoughts. I tend to see them as guidance. Mm. And if a thought keeps bubbling up for me. It's like, I feel like I have to pay attention to it. Sure. Uh, so, so right now I'm saying there's been three times in my life where I've 
gone through a period where I've been saying yes to anything. And in my, this teacher's words, her name is Jeannie Zandi, by the way, and Jeannie's words, just focusing on what's my plate. So when something comes up into my life, I'm in the third time that I've done this of just saying yes. I, I consider it to be the sacred yes. And anything that's coming my way, yes. The answer is yes. My daughter asked me to do something, yes. Is that three times that no, it's that? It's, it's three different distinct periods that I've done I this. See. And each time that I've done this, I think the first time I did it was in late 90s. And then I did it again shortly before I met Jen. Um, so that would have been like 2008, 2009. And, and anything that was coming my way, the answer was yes. Mm. And right now I'm doing it for the third time. And it, it is and was revolutionary. It, it's been remarkable. Uh, so right now I'm saying I'm in one of those phases. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in my life is, as you know, is become happier, is create more positivity in my life because I've been sort of a dour, cynical therapist for a long, long time. <laughs> and, and, and partly that's my upbringing too because I learned, because of my particular upbringing, I learned to expect the other shoe to fall at any moment. Uh -huh. So, but I realized with an 11-year-old at home that that's not what I want to teach her. And more importantly, it doesn't make me happy. Uh -huh. so, so right now I'm working on positivity. Yep. And honestly, I'm loving it. And, you know, and then I forget and then I forget. And then I have a moment where I start getting negative again, but it's, they're lasting much less long than they used to. So kind of circling back to the whole, what's going on in the country is that, does that look like you weaning yourself off a media diet, you know, because let's face it, none of that's really on our plate. I love this image of just focus what's on your plate. And when I reflect on that, I think, okay, my relationship with Meg, my relationship with my two children living at home, my relationship with my oldest son and his wife. And then that really, you know, like brothers, okay, yeah, and friends, sure, but that's really the plate, right? But if I go further afield and I start devouring different media outlets, then I can see that my plate gets bigger and maybe less manageable. So is that something that you're actively doing where you're weaning yourself off of reading the news? Uh, very much. And there was a time that I would, never would have said that, but I, I, the way I feel internally when I'm reading the news too much is not that the plate's getting bigger, but it's getting leakier. Uh -huh. You know, I'm feeling like I'm I'm losing my center. I'm losing my boundary. Yeah, I'm forgetting what's important, and then I'm obsessed and focused on this politician or that politician or this event. I mean, I'm, you know, so instead of doing that, I'm I'm trying to find a light touch around it mm -hmm. because I also want to keep myself in the loop somewhat. And I want my daughter to be aware of these things too. Right. So at this point, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll take a glance. I'll like look at the headlines. I'll see if there's anything that really calls to me. And, but ultimately the way I think, at least from my perspective, what I'm going to do is, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on what's in my plate and then have some faith, have some trust that if there's something that really needs my attention, 
really needs me to put some energy into it, it'll be really obvious. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, lately what I've been getting is to kind of, there's an organization in town that um, helps to feed people. And so it's like, okay, I've been feeling that. That's one of those reoccurring thoughts that, yeah, I think that's something I need to do. To put some energy yeah. behind that. Yeah, yeah. So not completely unplugging, but not allowing myself to get consumed. Either. But also putting your energy in a positive direction. Right. Yeah. I'm challenged by that, I got to say. Um, you know, I feel like probably my biggest role in life is protector, uh, which has its dark side and bright side. And so my, my uh, diet of media is to understand what's going on out there and should I be concerned. But like you said, I almost feel like I'll know if I need to know. But like the daily scouring of, you know, New York Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever it is to tap into different aspects of the outer world, I'm finding less and less that's serving my inner world. And this idea of, well, you're a protector, you got to know what's going on out there. And I can also feel like, well, maybe you don't need to know as much as you think you need to know. And if you have some sort of energy, put it behind some organization or some aspect where you're creating a positive influence or a positive change. Because I can see, really, the, the more of this Jamie personality that's come to light, a lot of it is based on fear, you know, fear of not knowing, fear of being dominated, fear of being vulnerable, and I think the news, the news feeds that in us as humans, hmm. you know. I, I find myself scouring more for good news stories, which are <laughs> few and far between in mainstream media. Well, and there's, uh, I think there is something called uh, the good news. I think it's a David Byrne project or something. There is some like outlet that. out there that's yeah. strictly good news. But I'm even aware, even as we're talking about this, that I'm telling your listening public that, yeah, I've, I'm plugging, not entirely, but I've been weaning myself off of the media. And I can, I'm aware of just a little pang of guilt, even saying that out loud. But, but I'm becoming happier and happier. And I, I feel right now, at this moment in time, it's the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we do have the capability of knowing what we need to know when the time is right. If there is something that you know, this happened, this really powerful, that's going to somehow impact us, your daughter, my daughter, and my sons. So, speaking of daughters, maybe a good way to wrap this conversation. What, how, how is this, how is it being an older father? to a younger daughter? Like, what is that dynamic? You have an 11-year-old. I have an 8-year-old. Um, we aren't spring chickens, Tom <laughs> Bender and me. Uh, that said, you would probably never guess our age. I think we're both exhibiting a lot of youthfulness. Much of it's attitudinal. Much of it is good genetics. But what is that? 
relationship for you like with your daughter? How has that, how has that impacted your life? Yeah, I would love to answer that. And I'd like to hear your answers. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I will happily give that. Uh, it's, it's been revolutionary. It's, it's one of those things where, I, like I said, I was going through that, one of those sacred yes times when I met a younger woman who eventually came around to saying she wanted to have a child. I was long past it. And then I had to sit with it for three or four months. And I decided, okay, um, lived a lot of life, and I, but I still wasn't sure. I also liked my freedom. And uh, Ram Das once said, I think, I think it, this was a lecture of his or in one of his books, is that everything is a spiritual trap, and we walk into them willingly and knowingly, and it can all be attachment too, but we walk into them willingly and knowingly and, and give our whole heart to it and just hope and wait and pray for it to self-destruct. Right? Hmm. Interesting. And so, so that's part of what I feel like I, I, that's why I said yes in part to having a kid. It's like, okay, I'm in. And I was really clear that, that her name is Zinya, that Zinya was going to teach me having this child was going to teach me just whole new levels of lying. Uh, so when Jen was pregnant, I had a friend that described having a child as obliterating. And that's been, I, I, that's been my experience. It's been a shamanic journey. Uh, and most shamanic journeys, in, you know, have a metaphorical death, right? Yeah. So the Tom Bender that used to exist before my kid has been completely transformed. Mm. I am um, amazed. I'm amazed every day. Just every day. I'm feeling, com I feel completely dedicated to parenthood. I love being a father. Every once in a while, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, uh, the uh, birth certificate <laughs> issue. Yeah, yeah. And for those, so I'm 62, so I'm yeah. to an 11 year old. And so, um, and so, and then growing up, I had a mother that her first response to everything was no. So it's like a big no stamp mm. to everything. Mm. And so I've been determined to be yes with her. And she's, her requests are very reasonable. And if, you know, if one is like, can I have candy for dinner? Yeah, of course not. But, right. but otherwise, I, I try to lead with my yes with her. And she is awesome. And uh, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. yeah, she is an amazing uh, girl. I recall driving her around in, in our uh, Russian motorcycle, the Ural, which has a sidecar, and it was her birthday present. And I just was struck. I kept looking over at her, and she was so present and engrossed and involved in this very visceral experience of riding in a sidecar on a motorcycle. And I was like, wow, she's just so self-contained and, and like self-aware in a way that you often don't see in, mm. in young girls, right? Mm. Especially. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, fully endorse uh, Zinnia as an amazing little being. So I imagine she is definitely one of your good teachers. 
yeah, it's been amazing. And what about you as an older dad? Yeah, I mean, we we always felt, Meg and I always felt like there was a girl out there hovering in the ethers wanting to be part of our family. Um, you know, years went by and she didn't show up. And we felt like, okay, well, I guess that wasn't going to happen. And we gave away our baby stuff from Bodie. And, uh, and then we found out we were pregnant. I was like, no way. <laughs> yep. And I always thought that I was just going to have boys. You know, I would be creating boys and figured there was a third boy on the way. I, I love my sons. That's just, I can't say enough good about being a dad to a couple of boys. And here comes this girl. And... I tell you, it was pretty apparent from very early on that this girl had my heart. And she, you know, I got to say, she was probably the beginning piece to this journey that I find myself on now of softening, of heart opening, of more patience more understanding, more willingness to go to a place of feeling. And I feel like Taya has helped me with all of those things. And she and I are like thick as thieves, you know. I mean, it's just a daddy's girl thing in a really positive way. And I, I can't, I just can't imagine my life without her in it and so as a man and in the in the thread of this conver conversation i feel like she has been a great teacher in that way of like how to be a father and not just you know it's it's easy with boys to just carry on that patriarchal mindset hey dude this the way it is hmm. you know uh, and do it my way or else, you know, kind of the imposing, big energy, you know, strong, powerful voice, and I just can't pull that shit off with her. And she's a Taurus, so she's not just going to roll over and be like, okay, Dad, sure. She's going to push back. And in the pushing back, I've learned so much. Mm about what it means to, to give. Have you, not, have you seen the uh, influence of that mindset on your son? How has it affected him? Mm, that's probably another podcast we got to get okay. you on. Okay. Um, there, yeah, there's a dynamic at play there that I probably don't want to necessarily go into now. I'm hoping it's a little like uh, water torture or, or water on a rock where it's just drip drip, drip, it will reinform that relationship. Um, I'm, I guess I can say I'm constantly amazed at her loving attitude um, towards her brother. It's just, it, it's like an open heart no matter what. Hmm. And even if I 
go to her defense, she'll go to her brother's defense. You know, or if I try and shut something down, she'll she'll not side with him, but like it's you know, and not diminish like what happened. You see, this is a slippery slope. But there I guess what I'm trying to say in that relationship, there is this open heartedness with her. Mm-hmm. And she's very strong in her goodness. Whereas I feel like my goodness is is a, a work in progress and a challenge to go to goodness. She seems inherently there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that to me has been a really great teacher. Like, yeah. I'm, yeah. Just having a daughter has been a gift. And, and having two beautiful sons is also a gift in a very different way. You're not going to have any more children. No. So you're one and done, and you got a good one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's see what something was bubbling for me. Um, I know what it is. It's it's changing tax here a little bit. Sure. But for some reason, this is coming up. Uh, and this is to all any men that are listening to this podcast too, and to my clients and to me. We have to do our work first. We get to do our work first. A lot of times when I'm working with somebody, you know, the, the guy might say, well, this isn't fair. That's unfair. What about her? And what I'll tell them, especially like if I have the person alone for a little while, but even if she's there, it's like, you do your work first and I'll back you up down the road. First, you get to kind of address this. You get to be more, work on your emotional body. You get to be more, work on being more respectful or more relational. And then I got your back. And to me, that's, that's us growing as men. And it's what we need, right? Yeah. In the country. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's like the dominoes, you know? We get one man and another man and another man doing this work, relational work. Yeah. And that, what about her... You know, we get to put that aside for a while. Yeah. It's it's about, what about me? And that's where our true power is too, right? So, right. Yeah. Nice. Anything else you want to throw out there in this conversation? I want to make sure you're feeling good, complete. It's been a joy. It's been a treat. It's been amazing. <laughs> I love this conversation. Like we could, I always feel this at the end of every conversation I've had so far. It's like, oh, you know, go make some tea, take a tea, a pee break, and come back to it, Mm. you know. And uh, who knows, we'll probably do this again. Um, Briefly, how can people find Tom Bender out there? Uh, Well, my website is thomasbendertherapy.com. Okay. And you can just go online and contact me through that. Awesome. I'll have that in the show notes. Uh, And I urge anyone out there, Tom is an amazing therapist, a very bright light out there, especially for us men. And uh, he's got a a lot of arrows in his quiver Hmm. that uh, he can utilize, a lot of tools in his tool belt. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Really appreciate it.
If you like the show and listen on Spotify, please follow and rate the podcast. If you are on Apple, you can rate and write a review. And if you want to show us some love on whatever podcast platform you listen on, that would be much appreciated. This podcast has been edited and produced by Gilroy Productions. Thanks, buddy. Love you.